Let's go to Mandla L. Isaacs, who's our guest this evening. As I said, he's a, pol- a political economist as well as the managing director at Zahuti Advisory. Good evening and thank you for joining us, Mandla. Good evening, Gershwal. Thanks for having me. Awesome stuff, mate. Listen, so uh, very interesting, um, uh, a very interesting event this past week, as we know. Uh, when it comes to the state of the nation address or SONA as we call it it's something that people look forward to for various reasons either because of the uh, pomp and ceremony and the dramatics that we see whether it be from the opposition benches or alternatively um, you know some of us actually sit down and listen to what is the content of SONA and then make up our minds on whether we think uh, that there's much hope for us uh, you know as a country and moving forward but ultimately, this was a very interesting year. Some people going as far as saying that this was by far the most important State of the Nation address ever delivered. Do you, uh, do you, you know, since 1994 at least, do you share those particular sentiments? Well, I mean, I would say I live in the present. So I'm someone that, you know, I'm always thinking about what, how we can confront the problems of today and the, and the opportunities of the future. So... For me, every sonar is going to be the most important one since 1994, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's an important point to raise because I think that a lot of people do, uh, you know, that they ultimately see a state of the nation as a hit or miss. You know, some some are more important than others. But as you said, the point is every single year going to the state of the nation address is important. But let's talk about, about uh, you know, what I can call some of the um, sideshow elements to the State of the Nation address. It's something that we've almost gotten used to. Uh, the economic freedom fighters in the opposition benches becoming quite rowdy and noticeable during a State of the Nation address. I mean, for a lot of political analysts and a lot of people, what they're saying is this is a party that seems to be substantively bankrupt, a party that doesn't seem to have any other tactic than to be rebel rousers um, you know, at an opportune moment. Uh, giving them necessarily the spotlight. Do you share those sentiments, especially based on what we saw this past week? Well, look, I mean, putting my political scientist hat on, I would say that, you know, you, you, you know, I'll answer sort of both questions, right? We talk about, well, what is the importance of the state of the nation? Our president is quite powerful in terms of the powers available to the president under the South African Constitution. Mm. But beyond the statutory powers that a president has, the biggest power in my view, arguably, that the president has is that of the bully pulpit, right? Mm. The president has this unique ability to, you know, focus the nation, to offer a vision. You know, he's the first citizen. You know, that is ultimately the president's biggest, most strongest power is the power of influence, Mm. the power to convene, to frame issues, and to try to set a direction. And so, you know, what the EFF is, is doing, you know, quite opportunistically, and I don't say that in a judgmental way, but, you know, just quite objectively, is that they have come to understand that the State of the Nation Address is, you know, that hour, that 7 p.m. when Africans tune in to, listen, to look at the president, you know, they stumbled onto this gold mine, you know, quite legitimately at first, because I think their protests against Jacob Zuma were at um, and were, were, were quite legitimate and effective. They stumbled off to this, and they've come to realize that at 7 p.m. The, on Sona evening, mm. that is the most um, valuable you know, 60 minutes in the South African political calendar. And they're, try, they're trying to steal the, the spotlight. And so the ANC does not quite know how to respond to that, because obviously the rules of parliament, 
it's kind of difficult to, you can't really silence them. And so they're still trying to figure that out. They hoped that, the, that you know, with Zuma's passing from the scene, that this would also pass from the scene. But now this is something that they're going to have to confront. And, you know, the EFF obviously is going to have to strike the balance between being opportunistic, but also realizing that as much as it energizes their base and may win them some support from the youth and people that want to see politics shaken up, they may also lose some support um, by people that are saying, look, I want to, you know, not, it, it's, it, this, is, this is significant, right? Not every South African can kind of sit there for three or four hours and see how all of this plays out. There are people mm. that, that really are trying to tune in and have one opportunity to hear their president kind of explain to them um, how he, he and his administration are going to try to address their problems. So obviously we want to talk about the State of the Nation address and the, you know, the content there of what the president told us, whether it was significant or not. But I mean, just as a final point on that, I mean, the key issue ultimately for a lot of people would be that when it comes to the State of the Nation address, um, they want substantive interaction. They don't want the uh, rebel rousing. They don't want sort of j- just the white noise. Ultimately, they would like some substantive engagement. So, and I was thinking to myself, I find it very perplexing that we sort of almost have a debate during uh, the State of the Nation address when there's obviously an opportunity after the fact to actually have that particular debate. So maybe these are some of the things that might be turning um, some of the voters off because voters are saying, but hang on a second here, uh, we didn't in essence put you guys in power or put you in parliament to to go shake things up in this particular way we want you to hold the powers that be to account and this is not necessarily achieving that that for me is is probably where a lot of voters are finding themselves right now uh, i mean I, w- I would tend to agree i think as you pointed out there's going to be a you know almost a week worth of debate in the coming days where opposition parties are going to have their opportunities to debate the speech I think that, um, you know, it's short-sighted of the ESF as much as they get to hog the spotlight and come across as revolutionaries who seem to be quite important to them. At the same time, it just, it just smacks of political immaturity. And I think when you, when you contrast, I think, you know, Julius Malema, who having, you know, lost an election is trying to dictate who the president appoints in cabinet and making an issue of FW de Klerk being at a, at a state of the nation address that he's been at, um, you know, almost every year, you know, so I think people are looking at it and saying, you know, if people are trying to decide, you know, who do I want to vote for? Who do I want to lead my country? Um, I think uh, Sir Ramaphosa is definitely winning the statesmanship battle against uh, Julius Malem, and it's, it's not even close. So let's talk a little bit about what came out of the State of the Nation address, Mandla, and, and I don't know what to expect in the lead up to it on, on Thursday. Excuse me, let alone the fact that um, there was also the issue of being load shed at that time. But luckily, um, I got things up and running and managed to sit down. And thanks to uh, the delay caused by uh, the, the EFF, I managed to actually watch the State of the Nation address. But the, uh, the, the point is, um, the State of the Nation address, uh, you know, has in the past, we, just last year, we heard from the president about a fancy city and a bullet train and, you know, sort of fantasy this and fantasy that. Um, then also at other times we've heard a little more pragmatic stuff coming through from him where he was a little more realistic and saying, that, look, these are the things that we need to focus on. For example, ending uh, state capture, uh, breaking the legs of corruption, so on and so forth. What did we get from the president this time? I mean, I saw your open letter to the president and what you requested from him. 
what did we actually get from him substantively in his speech? You know, Joshua, on, on Thursday, on the, on the evening of the State of the Nation address, I watched it, you know, as sort of a political spectacle, it was a political theater, you know, the former government speechwriter, sort of looking at it and trying to assess how he was performing, what kind of speech he gave. And quite frankly, I thought he did a very good job. I thought it was a good speech. I thought, you know, obviously there's a deep levels of frustration and anger in the country over the state of the economy, over ESCOM over, you know, corruption and the lack of prosecutions in the Zona Commission as you as you introduce. And so I thought he did a good job and you know, he and his team did a good job of showing that look, we, we understand, you know, the, the the pulse of the nation, we understand the concerns that you have. And here are the list of things that we're doing to try to address that. So on the surface of it, I thought he did a solid job. Mm. But then the next day I you know, I went through it now I look you know, I take the speech, fine tooth comb with my highlighter. And I'm going through, and I'm actually looking substantively at the, you know, the responses that government is giving. And I basically have three main sort of conclusions, which I'd like to share. So I think the first was, I mean, you allude to the open letter that I wrote asking for a vision. And mm. I, wasn't, I wasn't really expecting to get that, and I did not get that. So the first point is really just the scale of ambition. I think that, you know, let's, let's think back to, to August 2012. And, and this president, Sir Ramaphosa, the co-chair of the National Planning Commission. And they give us a, a vision to 2030, right? A generational vision of saying, over the next 18 years, mm. you know, we, to truly address poverty, unemployment, and inequality, we need to get this economy growing inclusively by levels of 5 to 6%. Okay, so now we've had basically the first decade of that vision. We've basically grown. We haven't grown at all. We've essentially grown... Um, by, you know, one and a half percent on average, mm, mm. which is basically what the population growth is. So essentially, we've stood still for a decade. He said that this is in a lost decade. Yeah. Now, the president is coming to us telling, about, telling, us about, telling us about maybe 100 billion uh, a year in annual infrastructure, a couple hundred thousand jobs here, some internships there. But he's no longer, you know, confronting that major question to say, if we want to fundamentally change our development trajectory, Mm. You know, we need to achieve levels of fast, inclusive growth, the likes of which have only been seen by the Asian Tigers, countries like Ethiopia, Rwanda. You know, we need to actually be, you know, world-leading from a developing country effectiveness perspective, and we're not doing that. And this, and he has not, I, I see a president that has curtailed his level of ambition, probably because he understands that he's leading a weak state, and also because of the limited fiscal space that he has. Yeah. But I just think it's, re it's remarkable the extent to which our level of ambition has decreased. And, and that, for me, is disappointing. Let, let's talk so a bit about that, point. because you, you're talking about ambition. And, and for me, it's very difficult for... And, 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 you know, I'm one of those people that wants to be an eternal optimist, because I look at, you know, the situation on the ground, realistically speaking. I'm seeing businesses shutting their doors left, right, and center. I am seeing... Um, you know, all kinds of discord and unhappiness and, and unease and difficulties going on. I mean, apart from sitting down and listening to the news and listening to about, you know, to the fact that some of our largest SOEs are 
uh, either under administration, alternatively, that they uh, going through one or the other crisis, crisis that has been, you know, whether it be business rescue or the ca- whatever the case may be, or even some of our biggest businesses, you know, retrenching people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The fact of the matter is, you drive past community shopping centres, and what you inevitably see is a whole bunch of empty shops, and uh, the economy is, in other words, is on a downturn. But a lot of people will turn yeah. around and tell you. That President Cyril Ramaphosa can't do much. He can't make those brave calls. He can't be too ambitious because he's sitting with a divided NEC. He's sitting with a divided ANC. And it's difficult for him to maneuver within that particular space because if he sets a foot wrong, guess what? Uh, That big R word that started with Thabo Mbeki might come descending on his head being a recall. Sure. I mean, look, I'll, I'll say a couple of things. First, you know, fundamentally, like I said in the letter, fortune favors the bold, right? Mm. I just think, you know, no one said this job would be easy. You wanted the tough job. You know, there's no point in, you're never going to be have as much political capital as you have right now, right? Realistically, mm. you know, the ANC had no right winning the election in 2019, basically having admitted to the country that it mismanaged the country for a decade. It wanted anyway, in large part because of his stature, and, you know, his ability to inspire trust in, in South Africa to give him one more chance. Mm. You know, what are you waiting for? I mean, so, so what? You're going to tread carefully, maintain your political capital to do what? I mean, sooner or later, you have to be bold. You have to take a risk. And the, and the reality is, you know, he, he, he was the business president. He was the guy that, mm. We thought, mm. you know, you've been in the business world. You have this stature. The economy trusts you. You know, big business trusts you, but you also have, you know, um, black business behind you as well. You have the unions. At some point, you have to use your political capital to do something bold. But this is the question, and and, and this is what I wanted wanted to ask you about the issue of political capital, right? And then I agree with you that he does have political capital all the way through from middle class voters, black or white, sitting there and saying Cyril is really trying to fix the economy, right? And he's really a guy that's anti-corruption and therefore we, we, we support this guy. And I mean, I, I mean that when we talk about race doesn't matter. It's almost, a, 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 almost and I'm saying almost, a middle class uh, unanimous vote on this one, unanimous vote on this one. But at the very same time, um, whether he has that support, the support of the unions, the support of the nation at large, the sad thing is those 60 people that make up the NEC are ultimately, uh, you know, the people that, that where, where his political stature, his political capital counts the most. And does he actually have it with those people? And is he therefore in a position to say that, guys, I'm going to grab you by a very uncomfortable part of the, of, of, of the human body and I'm going to drag you all the way through to economic restoration. Does he have that ability? I mean, I, I actually think he has that ability. I think if you look at, I mean, even if you look in, let's look at the inside the ANC politics, right? So yeah. I mean, the NGC, people make this NGC theme as this moment that you're able to, that he has to be careful of as if he might be deposed. It, it, it's next to impossible to remove an ANC president at an NGC. So basically, the next conference is going to be the next opportunity for him to face a threat. I mean, you talk about the NEC, the 80 members of the NEC, the vast majority of them are in his cabinet. They're his employees. Mm. We know that those ministry and deputy ministry posts are extremely, you know, influential pieces of patronage that he gives out. Yeah. Um, you know, the reality is that, I, that's well, I'm, I'm unwilling to given to this narrative that makes excuses for, you know, the president of the country 
he, you know, the level of privilege and power and authority that he has, mm. and the and the level of hopes and dreams of our people that's projected onto him. I'm sorry, you wanted the tough job. You know, this is leadership. It's not easy. Take, you know, if you want to be on the same level as transformational political leaders around the world, mm. you know, that made the tough decisions, that took the risks and wrote their names in history, like no one said it was going to be easy. Be bold. You know, and, and quite frankly, what I'm seeing in terms of the level of ambition, hmm. look, it's, 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 I think what it gets us to is it gets us walking. I think that we stood still for a decade. If anything, we started sliding backwards. Hmm. I think the plans that the president unveiled could get us walking forward in the next couple of years. You know, the, the reform program that Chito Mbawini laid out, which the president has backed, you know, talks about getting us to levels of three, three and a half percent growth over a decade. But I'm saying we don't need to walk. We need to run. Exactly. That's, That's what, what I was about to say. For, and that's the ambition I expect from him. And I'm going to continue to push for. So just as a, as a final thought then, I mean, um, Mandla, taking into account your open letter to the president, where you're basically saying to him that, listen, dude, you have the power and the ability uh, to run. And this is an opportune time for you to do so. What's stopping him? What is it that, and I, obviously you're not a, uh, you're a political analyst in this particular instance. You're not a fortune teller. You're not a psychologist. You haven't uh, sat down with the president and given him uh, uh, a therapy session. But what is it that's stopping this man from saying that, you know what, uh, and excuse the term, but I have the balls and I'm actually going to make the following call. So I think that the president genuinely believes that the idea of, you know, deliberation and the long conversation and achieving consensus eventually is the answer. I think he genuinely believes in that. I think that's his DNA as a former um, union negotiator mm. um, with the role that he played in Cadessa. I mean, that's been who he is, right? And so I think mm. that's in his DNA. I think he fundamentally believes in that. But I think that we have to adapt our leadership style to the moment. Yeah. I don't think we can just say, you know, I'm going to apply my, my leadership style, my comfort zone to every single situation. I think there are times where you have to understand what the moment calls for. So I think fundamentally that's, that's what it is. And I just think that, you know, the reality is, you know, we have to ask the question, um, quite frankly, as a, as a wealthy businessman, you know, as a political elite, as an economic elite, does he understand, does he have the sense of urgency? Does he understand what it means? Um, you know, does mm. he understand what people are going through around the country? People have continually remarked that he's always shocked. Mm, hey. Does he understand what it means to be in a country, um, you know, families where people don't work, where the vast majority of adults don't have jobs, mm. where people are, 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 are hopeless, where people have given up looking for work, where people are, quite frankly, just desperate for an answer and just, and just looking with growing frustration at a political class that seems to put its own interests and issues above, you know, responding to the, the needs of the people. And uh, you know, I, the, question, the question is still out on, does he have that sense of urgency and can he mobilize that sense of urgency in the ANC? Listen, mate, I really appreciate your time. All the best to you. Thank you so much for a very engaging and interesting conversation. That was Mandla L. Isaacs, political economist and the managing director of Zahuti Advisory.